It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. This week we've been talking about a most vital issue. To me, it is the number one issue facing America. Unrighteousness, unholiness, godlessness. The total collapse of the Christian church in America. No longer do we preach righteousness and holiness. No longer do we preach the gospel that a man can die to his sin and be reborn and be a changed person no longer walking in sin. These precious truths have been destroyed in the American church by Calvinism, by the Reformed theology, by the prosperity teachers, by the humanistic teaching of men like Joel Olstein. We have to recapture and be brought into that crisis once more of dealing with our sin and being set free to walk in holiness and righteousness before God. Revival cannot come to America so long as we do not come to a crisis regarding our sin. That's what revival is. Coming to a conscious awareness of our sin and deciding to do something about it under the deep convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. So today, I'm going to try to draw some conclusions to this discussion. And then next week, we will once more go in depth dealing with the question of was the Apostle Paul a sinning Christian? As is claimed by the Reform Movement, absolutely he was not. But we'll deal with the scriptures that they use as proof text to demonstrate that they have twisted the scriptures. We're going to deal with other issues around this central theme of salvation and what it means. Today I want to give credit to a wonderful man who has now passed Dr. Malcolm Lavender, he wrote a book, The Fallacy of the Sinning Christian. It was a wonderful help to me when I was struggling with these issues. And so I give him credit today as both a Greek scholar and as a very serious and committed Christian. Now, let's begin today, but before we do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm going to open this issue once more for your people that they could have an opportunity to receive the Messiah in all of his fullness and not turn aside in unbelief as did the Jews. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in power today and open the hearts and the minds of your people that they could be saved. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Many of you listening to this broadcast today are not on the narrow path. You're on a religious path. You're on the Broadway path because you still walk in known sin. And you have justified your course by the teaching of the Reformed believers who believe in something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is necessary for you to reevaluate what you call salvation, and it's necessary for you to come into a crisis situation where you see by the power of the blood of Jesus your condition before a righteous and holy God, lest you come to that last day with a false comfort lest you come to that final judgment bar of God and he cast you out because you believed a lie. Now, there are very good reasons to believe that lie. Believing that lie gives you the option of not being crucified with Christ. 
It gives you the option of continuing to be in charge and command of your life. It gives you the comfort of claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, of claiming to be a Christian. But you can relax because you know you're saved. Literally, universalism has taken over the day. The belief that God's love is unconditional. It is not unconditional. It is unfailing. Nowhere in the scriptures is unconditional love taught. It's a lie. Search the scriptures. You will not find one Greek word. You will not find in the English language the word unconditional love. That is a symptom of the wickedness of our age as we have come up with psychological terms to comfort us in our sin. And there is comfort. I won't lie. There is comfort in believing a false gospel. But when we come to the judgment bar of God, we will be cast out because we believed a lie and denied the truth because we wanted to continue in the wickedness of our hearts. So let's look at this issue very carefully. And I'm not going to deal with it in an emotional manner. I'm going to deal with it in a very plain unemotional way, simply laying out some of the arguments that must be considered when you look at your salvation or your false salvation. If this is not a question you're willing to deal with, then you are lost. In the New Testament, unbelief is intellectual in the sense that intellectually I don't believe that this is truth. But unbelief is also behavioral. It is what we do. It is how we act. It is what, it's what we think and what we will. Both of these, what we think and what we do, must be considered. It cannot be separated. Unbelief is an intellectual and willful rejection of both the written word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit as he attempts to teach and lead and direct our lives. So it is self-evident that our error makes its way into the church because of disobedience to the word and to the Holy Spirit. But the believer is obedient both to the teaching of Scripture and to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You cannot deny scripturally that both intellectual belief and action must go hand in hand. We act out in our lives the acceptance or the rejection of the faith of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. Now, unbelief is sin. Let's be very clear. Unbelief is sin. Even if that unbelief is based on a false belief. If it causes you to reject the truth, it is sin. Because the Holy Spirit will not allow you to continue to walk in unbelief if your heart truly desires to know what is true. All sinful acts are grounded in unbelief and rebellion, in lawlessness. Whether of the world or of the church, unbelief is not only behavioral, It is the state of a non-compliant mind and will. A person in this condition continues to be unpersuaded by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So it is possible for you to listen to this broadcast and absolutely be unpersuaded and continue to walk in your sin and claim that you are saved. 
but I want you to understand what you're doing if you hold to that position. Know that buried in the depths of your soul, there is rebellion. There is a refusal on your part to be persuaded because you do not want to be crucified with Christ. You want to find a way to be saved and avoid the crucifixion of your life. You want to be able to continue holding hands with the world on one side and holding hands with Jesus on the other. I saw a picture of a couple. They were standing before a pastor to be married. And he had his arm around his bride as he stood there. And he had his hand on the other woman standing to his left. And the wife is looking around her husband's shoulder and sees that he is standing there with his hand on the back of the woman beside him. What should she think? He wants to be married to her, but he wants to play with another woman. That is a picture of today's church in America. We are an adulterous people. We have cheated on Jesus Christ. We have been unfaithful to him. It is necessary then to meditate on, to think about the question too long passed or suppressed, not dealt with. And here's the question. If the, if God rejected the Jewish people for their unbelief and the hardness of their hearts, if he rejected the Jewish people for centuries and the Jews have now been considered lost because they would not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, how is it that unbelief or disobedience in the, quote, sinning Christian, unquote, among Reformation and Calvinistic systems is called evangelicalism? and not simply unbelief. Is not this so-called evangelicalism also unbelief and thus rejected by God? Both are an unbelief with respect to the work of Christ. We find that very sobering confrontation in John 1, 11 and 12, when it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And he went on into the synagogue and spoke boldly. This is in Acts 19, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them. Or if you look at Romans 10, verse 21, but to Israel he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Or you look at Hebrews three, seventeen and 18. Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And did... Did he not swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who did obey? And so the Jews stand rejected by God because of unbelief. That unbelief led them to disobedience, to sin. The unbelief was sin. The Jews not only rejected the leadership of Moses... 
they rejected the Messiah. They rejected his sacrificial death. They rejected the merits of his blood to deliver them from sin in the here and now. They were not in unbelief of a promised Messiah. They were in unbelief that the Messiah was the one who fulfilled the promise. Now, in the same way, the Reformation and the Calvinist advocates suppose that the blood of Christ will remove sin beyond the grave. They are thus in unbelief of the truth that it removes sin now. The Jews and the Reformation and the Calvinist doctrine advocates are in unbelief with respect to cardinal issues of present deliverance because of false hopes placed in future expectations that can never be for the Jews a future Messiah, for the Reformation and Calvinist advocates a future deliverance from all sin. And so for all of these futuristic hopefuls, the Christ will appear not as the promised Messiah, not to remove sin, but apart from sin. So let's note very carefully. The belief in salvation, while you're walking in sin, is called Reformation and Calvinistic systems of theology of theology, and they forcefully reject the purpose of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. They reject the purpose of the atonement, and consequently, they reject the atoning blood of Jesus itself. They reject the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ to save a sinner from sin right now, right here. They reject the moral necessity for righteousness now, claiming unconditional security, and that unbelief is the only sin that brings the second death. They refuse to see the conditional nature of salvation. They refuse to see that sin and righteousness cannot mix. Now, the purpose of the atonement is that sin may be removed in this life. But in unbelief of this truth, these systems stand in the same false security as did the Jewish people. Our God does not receive or accept any person simply on the basis of some supposed faith in the future. He rejects the unbelief of every man. If today you do not believe that Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary to deliver you now from your sins, you are walking in unbelief even as the Jewish people walked in unbelief regarding Jesus. You are walking in the same manner as they are, and you will be rejected in the same manner in which they have also been rejected. All men stand or fall before Jesus according to their faith or unbelief in his word. In unbelief, the Reformation and Calvinistic systems reject the atonement of Jesus. They do not believe that by blood and divinity, the perfect sacrifice wrought a perfect salvation by which sinners may be saved from all sin in this life. Thus, in unbelief, the Levitical animal and the Christ, the Messiah, are made the subjects of a common outcome in which the removal of all sin is a hopeless reality this side of the grave. Hence, the parody of the Levitical animal and the Lamb of God to these systems. We covered this yesterday, but let me review it for you quickly. We're told in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, 
that it is impossible for the blood of lambs and goats and heifers to remove sin. And for that reason, in the Old Covenant, they were declared righteous. But when we come to the New Covenant, the Calvinists would have us believe that now we are also declared righteous, even as we continue walking in our sin. They are equating the blood of Jesus Christ to the blood of bulls and goats and saying it is no more valuable because it cannot remove your sin now. So it consigns you to a life of struggling with sin, to a life of being ravaged by Satan, to a life of constantly trying to overcome. It literally puts before you a life of legalism. All the while saying, you're saved, don't worry. When Jesus comes and you die, or if you die and Jesus comes and you're saved, you're in. What a horrendous falsehood. It is right at this point of this comparison of the legal standing of a person in the Old Covenant with the legal standing of a Christian. They say it's the same deal. And their unbelief is absolutely clear. For them there is no faith that the sacrificial death of the Son of God is the answer to the needs incurred by the fall. Thus, Calvary availed no more than did the Levitical altar, for man in this life is still left in his sins. An atonement theory must effectively satisfy the needs that necessitated an atonement in the first place, else it is not an atonement. In these systems that I'm describing, the necessity of the, of the atonement is unanswered. They leave no word of the blood's power to remove all sin now. This validating distinctive they would take away, for the blood is denied its crucial evidence, the removal of all sin in this life. That famous bumper sticker that we see on cars every once in a while. There's no difference, it says. There's no difference between you and me except that I'm forgiven. And the research done by Focus on the Family under Dr. Dobson was very clear about this. The research demonstrated that those who call themselves evangelical Christians watch the same television shows, go to the same movies, go on the same vacations. There was no discernible difference in lifestyle between those who say they were Christians and those who were saying they were not Christians. Oh, there was one slight difference. There was more divorce among those who called themselves evangelical Christians. My friend, if you look like a duck, you act like a duck, you sound like a duck, there is a reason you are a duck. If you look like the world, you sound like the world, you act like the world, you simply have a hobby called religion, You are still of the world and you are still lost. Either sin must be dealt with now in your life and totally removed from your soul. Or you do not dwell in Christ, for you cannot be in sin and in Christ at the same time. He will not tolerate this. And so there is a great void today in the life of the church because righteousness has not been taught. We've not been taught that we can have full victory. As a child growing up, I have to tell you, I was taught, look, just do your best. Trust Jesus and do your best. And so my life was a life of struggle, repenting, then committing the same sins all over again, repenting, doing the same thing over again, repenting. And in that repetition, I finally grew so distressed and so agonized of heart 
that I almost totally gave up all Christianity because I said, this is a stupid game. I cannot do this any longer. If I'm going to be of the world, then go and enjoy the world. If I'm going to be of Jesus, then there has to be a change in my life. And then I began to grasp this concept that without holiness, no one can be saved. Real holiness. And I began to understand after much struggle, at first thinking that holiness came by trying hard, And then the glorious truth began to seep into my heart and into my mind that holiness is a gift from Jesus. That the eradication of all sin in my life is done by the precious blood of Jesus. It's not something that I white-knuckle. It's not something I have to agonize to try to accomplish in my life. The agony is coming to terms with my sin coming to that crisis where I know I must enter into Jesus Christ, the agony of giving up all authority in my life. I spoke with a young man last night. He said, Pastor, I want to surrender to Jesus, but I'm finding I'm so depressed. I'm even suicidal. And I said, oh, that's exciting to me. He said, what do you mean that's exciting to you? I said, that means you're finally coming to terms with what it's going to mean to die. You're finally coming to terms with what it means to utterly give up your life to Jesus Christ and to step out and to let Jesus Christ step in and he will come in with power and he will totally change your life. He was groaning. He was groaning on the telephone. He was, oh, oh, oh. He was under deep conviction. Oh, I know this brother's going to come through in mighty power and victory in Jesus. I'm praying for this man. I'm praying for victory. And I know he'll have it. But many of you have put off that crisis. You have been satisfied with trying hard. You've been satisfied with your religion. You've been satisfied with the lies of the churches as they teach you that you can be saved in the midst of your sin. All you have to do is receive Jesus. No, Jesus has to receive you, and he will not receive you as long as you demand the right to continue to walk in wickedness before him. There is either power in the blood of Jesus Christ to set you free, or the whole deal is a false deal. It is a lie from beginning to end. Yes, I am saved by faith alone, but not by a legal declaration done at the cross. I am saved by the blood shed at Calvary that is effective now for the removal and renovation and change of all of my life. This truth is so stunning and so awesome, and I'm spending so much time talking about it because It took a long time for this to finally seep through the barriers of my heart that I would finally begin to understand what it means to be a Christ follower. Where it would finally sink into my heart what it meant to be crucified. I had drunk the Kool-Aid of the worldly church for so long. I had been filled with so much ambition and so much desire to be somebody and to be successful. I for so long had considered first and foremost what others would think of me. Today I come and speak these words on this broadcast without any concern about what you think of it or what you think of me, except my eagerness of heart that you would be delivered and set free by the precious blood of Jesus. The only one I care about 
what he thinks of me is Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. I care what he thinks about me. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to grieve him. I love him with all my heart, with all my soul. He has totally changed me. He's taken away anger and pride and bitterness. He's taken away lying and cheating. He's taken away ambition. He's taken away sexual impurity. He's taken away the sin. And he's made me holy and righteous. And he's filled me with his Holy Spirit. My brother, my sister, he can do the same for you today. The daughters and the sons of Adam in the fallen race have one who is mighty to save from all sin right now. We've been taught a theory that consists not of an atonement made on the cross for the destruction of sin, but simply in an alteration of sin in which it no longer brings death to the soul and separation from God. My dear brother, my sister, please hear me. Please hear me. Pray about this issue. How is it possible that the mighty God of heaven who sacrificed his son on Calvary, where Jesus was sacrificed to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil, tell me, how could the God of heaven ever be content with allowing his children to continue to walk under the power of the devil, to continue to walk in sin. How is it possible that the God of heaven, the righteous and holy God of heaven, who would sacrifice his his precious son to remove sin, how is it possible that he would say that now I've done something so that a soul who sins will not die? and will not be separated from me, that sin no longer has that power. Is that truly something you desire? I abhor it. I hate it. I come and sacrifice time and money and energy to come because I hate the whole deal that America has been caught up in. It is destroying our nation. It's destroying our young people. It is such an evil The truth must be proclaimed. And I ask, will you join me in the proclamation of this truth? Will you come to the altar of God and will you allow him to eradicate sin from your heart and from your life? Will you believe in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and stop assigning this utter wickedness that blocks the blood of Jesus in your life right now? The most popular And the most deceptive atonement theory in Protestantism stands in scriptural unbelief with respect to the sacrificial death of the Son of God. And for a dying race that must soon face him at the judgment bar, all it offers in their system is saved sinners, unchanged this side of the grave. I believe this whole system of theology will finally result in the great deception that is brought in its fullness in the end of time. So this Reformation Calvinistic system of theology rejects the power of the blood of Jesus Christ as saved from sin in the here and the now. These zealots who teach this deny the possibility of living above sin in this life. I listened to the Bible answer man as he waxed eloquent on saying, Oh, you are not treating sin as what it truly is. Every man constantly, every day sins 
constantly against the living God of heaven. That's not in accord with the teaching of scriptures. If I walk every day in sin, then I have either proven that the blood of Jesus Christ is ineffective against sin, and then I have no hope in salvation, or I have believed a lie. Yet the world of religion in America believes this doctrine of extremism. If you doubt me, just do what I've been doing. I've been asking people everywhere I go, is it possible to live a life free of sin? I have not found one person who has not been taught who would say, absolutely, you can live a life free of sin today. Everybody says, as though it were just common knowledge, everybody knows you can't live without sin today. Really? You really can't live without sin? So the blood of Jesus Christ is too weak. It's powerless. It cannot deliver a man from sin. Is that what you're trying to say to me? And they say, oh, pastor. Come on. We sin every day. Everybody knows that. Nobody's perfect. Well, that depends on whether perfect means completely mature. No, none of us are perfect in that sense. All of us are going to grow up through eternity. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have an awful lot of growing up to do. I'm wrong about many things in my life. But it's a sign of immaturity, not of sin. If you mean by perfect that you don't sin, then we are required by the gospel to be perfect, not by our own works, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now these false teachers contend for an unconditional security in which the believer is saved, though in sin. But that sin and faith, a form of unbelief, can never coexist in the life of a true believer. It is impossible that a corpse, because that's what a sinner is, a corpse, it's impossible that a corpse can be in Christ and not come to life. One sin in the Garden of Eden brought death to the human race. The Apostle Paul affirms this truth in Romans 5.18. He says, By one sin, judgment came, and all conceivable men under condemnation. So from the fall, there are three mighty truths that come to view. First, sin and condemnation cannot be separated, as the advocates of the sinning Christian attempt to do. Save from condemnation, but not save from sin. Sin and condemnation stand together as cause and effect, as act and penalty. Second, one sin was cause for removal from the Garden of Eden. Likewise, no sinner can be in Christ, though he claimed to be under grace. A holy God can neither countenance sin nor fellowship a fallen, disobedient nature because he has offered the blood to wash and cleanse in his great mercy. And third, sin in Eden brought death. This death was immediate or spiritual and imminent or physical. Thus, separation from God came upon the whole race. Since sin necessarily brings death, it is not possible that a corpse may be in Christ, as the theological morticians would have us believe. But their unbelief in the merits of the blood of our Savior to remove sin now would have a corpse of a sinning Christian unchanged in Christ. And amazingly, this is called faith, security. It's called grace. And yet the absence of truth is so utterly pronounced This is utter deception. It is unbelief. Unbelief in the merits of the shed blood to save completely in the here and now is sin against God. 
unbelief in the merits of the blood to transform sinners to life in Christ and righteous living is grounded in this erroneous view of the purpose of the atonement. They tell us that Christ died for us while being in unbelief. That he does anything in us. He does, they do not believe that Christ does something in you. Christ did something for us. But just as certainly, if you are saved, he did something in you. Now we're running short on time today. We're going to pick this up again. Tomorrow's going to be rebroadcast as normal. But we're going to pick this up next week. But I want to share some scriptures with you now that will say exactly what I've been teaching you today. And before I go to those scriptures, I just want to say again, I need to very much invite you to stand with me in this fight, and it is a bitter fight. This radio broadcast needs to be on FM radio. There is not one holiness teacher on the FM side of the Wave of Broadcast band. Every one of them are reformed. We desperately need to have this kind of message going out over the full spectrum of Washington, D.C., We also need to be able to continue this broadcast on this AM broadcast. And to do that, I need for men and women to step forward and say, I understand what you're saying. I want this to continue. And I'm going to support it with tithes and offerings. I believe that the work of the gospel should not be supported by selling things, by business. I'm not a businessman. I'm a preacher of the gospel. And this work needs to be supported with tithes and offerings. And so if your heart is stirred and you want this to continue, you need to listen to this broadcast. You're eager to hear the word of God. Then I ask you, please be generous as you step forward with tithes and offerings. If you would write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can send cash, money orders, or checks. I thank many of you who have stood with me this month. Currently, we have just over $800 toward the radio bill for this month, and obviously, it's going to be in excess of 3000 If your heart is stirred by these messages, And you know you need to continue hearing them to understand the fullness of the gospel and to be set free. Then I'll look forward to hearing from you. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You're also heartily invited to come and worship with us. And I'm going to be very bold If you're in a church that teaches the sinning Christian gospel, it is no gospel at all, run from that church. And I invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel or find another place where the true gospel of Jesus is being taught. There are not very many places where it is being taught. I find even some Nazarene churches are now turning from this gospel. Some Assemblies of God teachers are turning aside from this. I'm finding those holiness churches are not being faithful. Even many Methodist pastors will not teach what I've been sharing with you. They have turned in the modern day to a worldly gospel. So I invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel and stand with me. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. The address, 14851 Gideon Drive. That's the All Saints Anglican Church at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia. 
2212192. Drive around to the back side of the building and you'll see a large sign that says Lower Lobby. Come in through those double glass doors and you'll find on the left-hand side the Worship Center for the National Prayer Chapel. The All Saints Anglican Church has been very gracious and kind to us as a congregation, as well as Emmanuel's Anglican Church, two wonderful groups of Christian people with real brotherhood in their hearts. They've been very kind to us to provide this place of worship. Our service begins at 12 noon with prayer. You're welcome to come. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find directions. We're just off Interstate 95 South at Woodbridge, Virginia. We have people driving from Frederick, Maryland, from Dumfries and South. We have people driving from Prince George's County. People are coming from Hyattsville, Maryland. They're coming from all over the D.C. area. If you're hungry, you'll come. Distance will not be an issue. Some are even driving from Delaware. So if you're hungry, you'll come. Now let's go to the scriptures. In the few minutes we have left, I want to share with you Titus, the third chapter. Now I could pick dozens of scriptures that say the same thing. This one is one of those that is most clear concerning this question of the sinning Christian. This is Titus the third chapter, and I'll begin reading with verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Sozo. When Peter was sinking in the water, Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. Sozo. The leper was saved. Sozo. Leprosy was removed. Peter was lifted up out of the water so he did not drown. It says, he saved us. He saved us from our sin. Not because of righteous things we had done. And if you look at the Greek, it's literally saying, He saved us not with works of toil, because of our labor, but because of His mercy. A man is not saved by works. A man is saved by faith alone, but that faith works not by human energy. Holiness, as John Wesley taught, is a gift of God. Righteousness is a gift of God. Sinlessness is a gift of God. It says, he saved us, and now here is exactly how we were saved. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. The washing of rebirth, regeneration. Literally, in the Greek, he saved us by utterly changing us. This is what Scripture calls, Jesus calls, crucifixion. That's what Paul meant in Galatians when he said, I am crucified with Christ. He was utterly changed. He left his sin behind by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what the atonement was for. It was to remove our sin and pay the price that we could enter into the very heart of God. And so by the washing of rebirth, literally, Also, baptism. And if you look at Romans, the sixth chapter, baptism is the utter 
death of a person. It is the utter giving up of wickedness. It is turning aside from all darkness. It is being changed, renovated, a new creature. And the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Again, this Greek word means very clearly a complete renovated change. And so there is the absolute death that a person goes through. And then there is being brought up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit does in us. And this does not need to take a long time. It can take a matter of a few days, weeks, depending on how long we want to drag it out. Many today want to drag it out an entire lifetime, continue to walk in their sin and say, I'm saved. That's a lie. There is a change that is brought about by the resurrection. There is the death and the burial, and then we come through the cross of Jesus Christ. Most Christians want to stay on the wrong side of the cross of Jesus. They don't want to be drawn through the cross. They don't want to be drawn through the death. They'd rather stay on the other side and keep their sin and bow at the cross, weep and wail over their sin, but never be changed. I know of so many men and women. They'll be convicted by this broadcast. They'll weep over their sin and then they'll get drunk. They'll weep over their sin and go back to their fornication, back to their pornography, back to whatever the sin is that holds them. There has to be a complete death and only the blood of Jesus Christ can put you to death. And only the blood of Jesus Christ then is applied can bring you into resurrection. It says, by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, that is, rendered innocent, having been made righteous by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. If you have not been made righteous, you are not an heir of eternal life. You are the same as the Jews. You will not believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you continue to walk in your sin and you're lost. And if you're unwilling to come to this crisis I'm speaking of and right now surrender your life to Jesus and say, I'm done with sin by the power of the blood of Jesus. I am finished with it then you are lost. Almighty God, would you bring this truth home to my brothers and sisters? Would you accomplish your purpose now in their life that your blood was meant to do, to cleanse and wash and make clean and set free? Jesus, by your blood, make us righteous. I pray in your holy name. Amen. It's been wonderful to be with you. I pray God's blessing on you, and I pray the great convicting power of the Holy Spirit will bring this truth alive in your heart that you might be saved in the name of Jesus. God bless you. I'm Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I'll talk to you soon. 